Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. The world needs more people like Andy Griffiths. His work has taken him into brick kilns in India, where he has led a team of freedom fighters rescuing people who had been subject to enforced slavery, and to the West Bank in Palestine, where his organisation ran a program to create harmony and peace between Israelis and Palestinians through sport. But Andy started out his career in a very different way. I met Andy years ago when he was the legal director for ITV, the UK's biggest commercial TV broadcaster and production company. He went on to achieve what is the career pinnacle for any media lawyer by becoming the general counsel of the world's largest independent TV production company, Endemol. But it was when he realised that the pursuit of profit was not fulfilling for him that he turned his attention to the not-for-profit sector. He talks about the challenges he faced in going from a successful corporate role as a lawyer to running an office in Chennai, India for the International Justice Mission. We also talked about how to highlight the transferability of your skill set when you are looking to make any career change. But most inspiring of all, Andy shares some truly heartbreaking stories about the people he and his teams have rescued from slavery and how those perpetrators of slavery and violence have been brought to account. Andy is one of the most inspiring guests I've had on Freedom Hunters, so I hope you are just as inspired as I was from his fascinating story. Please enjoy the interview. Andy Griffiths, thanks very much for joining me on Freedom Hunters. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. Tell me, where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? So I grew up in Brazil, I was born in Brazil, and was there until age 14 in a, in a city which is, or I say city, it was a town at the time, although we were outside the town, so kind of outbacky in the middle of uh, Brazil on the border with Paraguay. So therefore I was a kid who, who sort of ran around barefoot or in uh, Havaianas when they used to cost a pound a pair um, <laughs> and uh, was fairly, fairly wild, really quite feral, I guess, making a lot of forts and tree houses. Really can't imagine you being feral as a kid, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sit here in my shorts and flip flops. Yeah, but what what was what took your family to Brazil? So my my parents were missionaries. Um, uh, so they worked with a tribal people. Um, so we lived kind of half outside this uh, this town called Cuiabá on the border of Brazil and Paraguay, and then the other half of the time with a tribe of indigenous people in their village, which was four days drive from anywhere at all. So we literally lived with a dirt floor and a, and a house my dad built in the traditional Indian style with um, uh, bamboo walls and kind of a, a grass roof. So it was a fairly strange upbringing, sort of um, going between living with these uh, indigenous people uh, and being taught by my mother uh, for schooling and then the other half of life living actually with a group of missionaries on this kind of missionary base um, in Brazil but with uh, fundamentalist Christians from the US. Um, so it was a strange, strange upbringing but but a joyous one. I loved it. That must have been amazing. What was it like spending time with the indigenous people there? Yeah, so uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't got any kind of shared language because they didn't speak English or Portuguese. Um, the reason my dad was there was he was translating the Bible into their language, which was an oral language, so it wasn't written down. Um, so he's the only white guy who, who ever learned how to speak it. So therefore, I couldn't actually communicate with any of the other kids there. But uh, but as boys, you know, you don't speak much anyway. So we uh, so we would just run around and um, uh, and make forts and play in the stream and stuff. So um, so it was it was fun. I mean, it was just a really uh, very free upbringing. My parents tell a great story that once they came out of our little house and my dad had built me a little almost like a little pen or in fact a cage so that I would wander <laughs> off because it was quite dangerous in the uh, in the in the jungle there. And so anyway, I, I came out, they, they came out one day and I was in this little pen and on the uh, on the wall, there was a snake curled up and apparently I was just kind of tapping its head and it was kind of swaying back and forth um, uh, on this on this fence post. And uh, and so, yeah, after that, I was probably kept in the house, not even though I'm in the pig pen. So it's a miracle you're here right now, it really. Is, it is, yeah. <laughs> so what happened then for your family too? Did they go back to the UK at that point when you were around 14? Yeah, so we came back to the UK. We we did we had spent three years between being being born and being fourteen. We spent three years back in the UK just to kind of reconnect with family and stuff. So I, I had been back to the UK, but yeah, in in um, 
1982, I think it was, we moved back from uh, from Brazil to the UK. My dad still carried on the work, so he'd go back to Brazil three months a year. Um, but the family base was in the UK, mainly because my parents wanted to get my sister, my older sister, me and my younger brother into the UK schooling system so that we might get a bit of paper that we could use one day. Handy. Yeah. But it's quite strange because I came back in 1982. And then having been brought up sort of uh, with this almost like an Amish community, it sort of was a bit like that in Brazil. And then on the other side with this indigenous uh, tribe, I had never heard of anything. I never, don't think I've even heard the word fashion. And so I had no idea in 1982 kind of what fashion was. I came back straight from Brazil. You know, obviously, this is in a pre-internet age. There are no, there is no Instagram. <laughs> there is no web. You don't know what anything looks like other than your immediate uh, surroundings. So, so I came back in 1982 when everyone in the UK was wearing drain pipes and um, uh, and listening to Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and all of that. That new romantic era, and I was wearing huge flares and um, uh, and just outlandish, <laughs> garish outfits. So I was. A Were they called your Roy flares? Uh, they, they were corduroy and jean, I think, uh, and I had big wing collars as well. So I was an oddity <laughs> when I came back. It could have been quite difficult, but fortunately, having been brought up in Brazil, I was actually quite good at football at that stage. I'd been playing football three or four times a day. And so coming back from, from Brazil to the UK and being very good at football at that stage, not now, um, actually that gave me a, a kind of an inroad to being kind of accepted, whereas otherwise I probably would have been a bit of an outcast. Yeah. So I kind of got lucky. And was it difficult to adapt back to the UK schooling system? Yeah, it was. Well, we'd been we'd been taught sort of half by my by my mother, who actually by background was a school teacher before we went to Brazil, um, and then the other half was in the American school system, which is very different to uh, uh, to to the UK system. So yeah, so essentially, sort of geography languages, kind of algebra, geometry. I hadn't done anything which was uh, on the English syllabus, so I had to drop a year. I'd been a year ahead in, in, in American school, and then I had to drop a year. So effectively, I kind of dropped two years, actually, um, in, uh, in coming back to the UK. So, yeah, so adapting was, was, was difficult, actually, yeah. Mm. Did you know at that stage what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, absolutely no idea. Well, I mean, obviously, I wanted to be a um, professional footballer or a rock star. Of course. Um, but uh, those things weren't looking terribly likely. So, well, you um, had uh, the outfits, Andy. I had the outfits, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and a modicum of talent, but, uh, but but no, no more than that. So, no, I had no idea at all. And because I'd been kind of brought up gloriously unconnected in any way to any sort of commercial or, or kind of corporate uh, background, to be honest, outside of being a, you know, a doctor or a teacher um, or a lawyer, I probably didn't really know what other professions there were out there. So yeah. I had no idea. Mm. So what did you do when you when it came to university time? I think I did what every uh, eventual lawyer does, which is that uh, I thought, I don't know what I want to do, so I'll become a lawyer. Um, yeah, so yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty common view. So um, no, so I, I picked law. I went to Bristol Uni and uh, I picked law because... I thought it was just a useful degree. So uh, I thought, you know, with, with law, I, it's respected. Bristol's a respected university. So uh, if I do a law at Bristol, I'll probably end up with a job somewhere. And so I, I did that. And then, of course, what, what happens after that is I think what happens with quite a number of lawyers, particularly those who end up at big corporate law firms, you yeah, you know, you're there at uni, um, law firms come down, they, they play football or hockey with you, they take you out for a whole load of free beers in the evening. Um, uh, so you end up sort of getting to know a whole load of lawyers, you end up sort of liking them. And then comes the milk round and you think, well, I might as well go for an interview um, because I don't know what else I want to do. So um, so I, I sort of did those interviews at uni along with most of my friends. You then get a job offer. Law firms will say, well, I'll pay you to do law college. And, uh, and then you're thinking, well, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I might as well go and have another year um, a sort of um, at law college with my mates. So you do that. And then you end up thinking, well, I still haven't got a better idea. So um, so I'll go and take up that job and become a lawyer. So uh, so that's what I did. Um, and I, I, so I became a lawyer, worked with Lovells, which actually I loved. I, I really enjoyed it. Mm, yeah, well, I'm nodding along furiously here because this sounds all <laughs> too familiar to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And one thing leads to another, and uh, there you are, 20 years later. 
Yeah, there you are. <laughs> <As a lawyer. laughs> exactly what happened to me. Yeah. So, uh, what did you specialise in a particular area of law at, at Lovells? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I joined Lovells actually oddly enough because looking at all the different law firms, uh, I had really had no idea, you know, whether Lovells or Freshfields, Linklater, Slaughter, whichever they were going to be. I had no idea which one I was going to join. At that stage, Lovells was the only one which ran two football teams in the London <laughs> Legal League. And so I, I lit this is absolutely true. It's not what I told them in the interview, but uh, but I chose levels because I just thought I'm probably going to get into one of those teams. There's two, so I'll get into the B team at least. So um, so I chose levels for that reason, not for any other reason. Uh, it, but it turned out to be a good place. I really liked it actually as a law firm. I liked the culture. It turned out to be a little bit more kind of liberal or broad-minded than some of the other city law firms. Um, and and one of the things that I, I I got very lucky working with two amazing partners who uh, are still friends and actually are still having worked now with many lawyers are still the two best or two of the best I've ever worked with. So I was very lucky. And it was a general general commercial law. So this was sort of before law firms were all organized along industry lines. So um, so you didn't have a kind of, a, you know, a media team or, a, a, you know, or, or a techno- technological team or whatever. You just you just literally had kind of different, it was, by, it was by law instead. So I was company commercial and corporate. And really what that meant is that anything which sort of didn't fit anywhere else in the law firm would come into our section and they'd say, we don't know what to do with this. Um, what do you think? Which was quite good because I mean it was always varied. So uh, so I ended up staying at Lovells for nearly eight years because I never did the same thing twice, which is which is which is great. Mm. And then you got into media though. Tell me about yeah. That. So uh, so being being in the bit of uh, of Lovells that did everything that didn't really fit anywhere else. Um, we yeah we ended up doing kind of quite a lot of advertising uh, standards and clearance work and um, quite a lot of work with TV. In the end quite a uh, sort of work which was everything from pet food labeling to trying to work out kind of how Hasbro could form a television channel or so so we ended the, the work ended up sort of being quite involved with sponsorship uh, marketing and what now would be called media or sports law sort of uh, was one of the things which uh, which came a lot into our team so one of the interesting jobs we did actually was the the first Ellen MacArthur who was the first uh, I think she was the first British sailor to win the Vendée Globe I think which is a single-handed yacht race around the world so we ended up doing the sponsorship deal with her making the making a really high-tech boat sponsored by Kingfisher at the time and that was fascinating and uh, so so that idea of sports really kind of caught my attention and I ended up moving then briefly uh, into a, a law firm called uh, not law firm sorry a, a sports marketing firm called Prisma uh, which was tiny, but it had the World Cup rights and Wimbledon rights. So I thought, well, that's going to be fun, isn't it? I'll get to go to the World Cup in Wimbledon. And uh, so I moved there. and As a lawyer? As a lawyer, mm-hmm. to be an in-house counsel there. And and actually, that was a mistake, because what I, what I hadn't thought about was how interesting my role as a lawyer would be. I thought it would be a lot of fun to go to the World Cup, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I hadn't thought, well, what would it be like being a lawyer at Prisma? And actually what I found is that it was the only time I've ever had this problem. We had too much negotiating power because you could literally say to a broadcaster, well, you know, after you'd had your debate and your argument for uh, over the contract and over the unreasonable clauses we'd always put in, um, you could say to them, well, I've, you know, we, we've, we've had the argument and uh, we're not changing it. If you really want the broadcaster rights to the World Cup, just sign it. And, uh, and in the end, they would just sign it. So mm. actually, it was quite boring as a lawyer because mm. there wasn't really, you didn't really feel you were, you were adding value you know, yeah. through negotiation. And so, uh, so I resigned actually after only three months after mm. uh, uh, Prisma. And, and that was to go to ITV. Mm. So what did you do at mm. ITV? Uh, pretty much everything. It was, a, it was an interesting time, ITV, because it was a, I joined in uh, late 1999. So... So there was at that stage the multi-channel explosion was just beginning. Um, there was also so advertising, which had been really exclusively only on a few sort of out, you know, basically Channel Four or ITV. Essentially, kind of if you were an advertiser, that was really where you could advertise, or on billboards, etc. But you didn't have online. You didn't really have the multi-channel world. You didn't have all of the other channels that we now have. So that all began really in around the year two thousand. So I joined at a time when ITV was was beginning to really have to pursue a kind of multi-channel world. Uh, so really having to invest in all of that, but at the same time actually losing advertising share and therefore losing money. So it was a difficult time at ITV, which actually made it very interesting as a lawyer because you really, really had to uh, create value um, uh, for uh, for ITV in any negotiation that you were doing. So we ended up setting up a number of um, 
uh, of, of broadband joint ventures, you know, with Liverpool, with Arsenal, with uh, Boots, the chemists. And, uh, and one funny thing is I remember the CEO of ITV telling me, right, get me into this deal with Boots. And, uh, and it's an online joint venture called Wellbeing. And, uh, and he said, right, and make it bomb-proof because we do not want uh, uh, Boots ever to be able to pull out because we think this is going to be really, really valuable. So tried to do that, tried to make it absolutely bomb-proof so no one could ever pull out. Around two years later, of course, I was told, get us out of this deal. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and that was, but, that, but it was those, there were years like that. It wasn't just ITV. A lot of people were jumping into things, um, uh, into a world which really no one was quite sure sort of how it would be. So it was a crazy yeah. time. And so it meant that you were actually pioneering in many respects. So for me, that was really interesting as a lawyer because you were at the cutting edge of, uh, uh, of lots of different things. Mm-hmm. So, so, I brought, so I began really doing a lot of, um, I, I think I began as head of broadband, uh, lawyer, legal head of broadband or something. And then, uh, so I did a lot of that, those sort of early channel deals and, and online deals. Um, and then after that, and quite a lot of sports work as well, ITV. And then also, then, then along came the merger with Carlton. So I was heavily involved in, uh, in that and in negotiations with the, with the, with the media regulator, uh, because obviously that was a, was a huge, uh, sort of coming together of two large entities. So we had to give lots of undertakings to the Office of Fair Trading and all of that. So it's regulatory as well, but really again at the, at the sort of cutting edge of that. So there are lots of really interesting things going on. So I stayed at ITV eight years, uh, nearly eight years as a whole. Ended up as the uh, direct group director for legal and regulatory compliance. So so did did all manner of things really at ITV, and uh, and met lots of fascinating people, including you. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, you made a move into a different. Uh, area of television after that Tell I did that. yeah so uh, at ITV the thing which I really I was effectively the number two lawyer at ITV uh, there was a general counsel I had always hoped for the the general counsel role when the general counsel left um, I didn't get that role and in a way it was the first time in a sense almost the first time when I'd kind of failed in a in a you know in a way so I had to deal with with that you know what is it like when you're the dream that you've had isn't. And it's a bit of a sad dream to become general counsel. I realise that. <laughs> but when the when the dream that you that you've had doesn't actually come to fruition, you kind of have to deal with uh, with failure. And um, uh, now my way of dealing with that at that stage was to think, well, I'm going to become general counsel somewhere else then. And uh, so so I moved to Endemol, which is the which is the largest. Uh, uh, independent television production company so about the same size as ITV actually smaller in the UK but operating globally across uh, I think we were selling formats and licenses to about 80 countries with production companies in in 26 countries so I was general counsel of Endemol and that was fascinating actually that was a whole mm-hmm. different kind of role essentially trying to create um, rights in in what are called formats which are basically the recipes for TV programs so uh, so creating rights in formats and then trying to uh, uh, protect them so involved uh, a lot of a lot of suing uh, different organizations that were trying to copy your uh, your formats in different countries and then trying to license our formats around the world so I, I went off and did that for three years there, uh, there, there was um, that was interesting it was uh, again different kind of learning in a sense it was the first sort of truly international role I'd had because I was sitting in in London. The headquarters at that stage had moved from Amsterdam because it's a Dutch company, Endemol. Uh, they'd moved from Amsterdam to London at that stage, uh, but we were operating with with lawyers in twenty six different countries. So I had people situated in twenty six different countries, and I had to really sort of learn how you negotiate, not negotiate, how you, how you sort of run a team virtually across lots of different countries. And I think scrolling back to where we began this conversation. My upbringing, having kind of been brought up almost as a three culture kid with with sort of English culture at home uh, in the middle of Brazilian culture, but living with a bunch of Americans and I guess even for fourth with some sort of tribal uh, people as well, I was sort of at root actually quite multicultural. So going back to Endemol in a sense was going back to dealing with a whole lot of people on a daily basis from very different cultures. Yeah. And just also to put in context, what were some of the TV shows that we might have heard of that you had at Endemol? Yeah, so uh, I guess the biggest one was Big Brother. So mm-hmm. that was the the kind of colossus that drove uh, Endemol to become to go from a fairly small production company to be uh, the world's largest TV production company. Uh, there was also Deal or No Deal, uh, Million Dollar Drop, uh, Wipeout. 
In fact, I went went around the wipeout course, which is in Argentina, <laughs> very unsuccessfully. A lot harder than it looks, and really? it looks hard. <laughs> so, yeah. No injuries, so, though. No injuries. Good, no, 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 good. No, no. <laughs> so it sounds like it was a really you know, fascinating legal career. Did you enjoy it? Were you enjoying it? Yeah, I found it really – I mean, I, I was very lucky that, I, as I mentioned, I, I, I went through – various iterations as a lawyer really and I was lucky that I wasn't really ever repeating work it was always varied always new often by chance kind of pioneering one one field or another so that that was just really really exciting um so I was lucky I so I found it intellectually challenging I found it uh I found it uh, consistently interesting it's always nice to see stuff that you're working on in the papers as well so you feel relevant in some way so all of that was great uh um and then, and I was at Endemol. I was also on the international executive board. And at that stage, and it's really there that that the sort of the, my story of, of change begins, actually, because I was sitting at on on at a board meeting, looking at our draft results for that that year, along with the rest of the board. And and actually, I found myself totally uninterested. And. And if you're uninterested in your results, then there is fundamentally a bit of a problem, isn't there? So, mm-hmm. so the day-to-day was interesting, the week-to-week was interesting, but what I realised actually was, and I must have been a slow learner because I was around 40 at this stage, but I realised that I didn't find it fulfilling. So I found it intellectually challenging um, uh, and fascinating and et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't find it fulfilling. And so I started at that stage thinking, well, well why is that? And I realised actually it's because at Endemol, we had three shareholders who really did breathe down our necks. Uh, they were Goldman Sachs, um, Media Set, which was Silvio Berlusconi's uh, organization, and then a Dutch private equity firm. So we had those three shareholders who had paid a lot for Endemol at the height of the market. They then wanted to make sure they got they built it up and got their money's worth, but actually the market had dropped a lot between two, uh, 2007 when they bought it and when I was there around 2011 to, sorry, 2008 to 2011. Um, so they were really focused on profit. So therefore, that was absolutely the thing that we as a management board had to focus on. And I realized it just didn't move me. So I made the obvious conclusion, which was, uh, right, well, if I'm not interested in profit, then I ought to be looking at not-for-profit, which does, <laughs> doesn't take a genius to sort of realize that, but it took me a while to, to realize that. Yeah. So then tell me about the whole process then of making that career change from uh, the corporate sector into not-for-profit. What was your thinking at the time and then how did you actually go about it? Yeah, so I, I wish I could, I wish it was, you know, I wish it was as structured as the way that you, uh, you sort of <laughs> said the questions out. It really wasn't. Uh, I guess it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a start, starting to feel that, that lack of, um, that lack of fulfillment and that, that I got to the feeling where, I got to the place where I knew that essentially the, the real reason why I was continuing to work at Endemol was for the money. It was interesting, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew in the end that it was for the money. And uh, here I don't want to sound like Prince with kind of, you know, wage slave written on my cheek or anything like that because uh, there's no reason to feel sorry for anybody who is effectively trapped by really their own desire to keep earning at a high rate. And that's really what was trapping me at Endemol. So the first thing I had to do was to work out, well, what could I live on, you know, and, and how much less money could I live on than what I earn now? Um and because obviously, if you're going to move into the not-for-profit world, you're going to earn a lot less than you are if you're a, a general counsel at, at Endemol. Um, so I started thinking about, well, what, what can I live on? And that involves conversations with the family, you know, and I'm very lucky, actually, that all of them were supportive and sort of saying, yeah, we'll, we'll downshift uh, if that's what you want to do. So so we, did, we we had those conversations and I started sort of then conversations. We had cup, endless cups of coffee with trustees of different charities. I have to say that was actually a really... That was actually a quite a quite depressing series of coffees on the whole. I still would always encourage people to go for those coffees, but most of them sort of said to me, "No, no, no, no. you'll never make the transition from uh, from being a lawyer into the charity world. Every lawyer wants to move from being a lawyer and then take up a senior role in in, in the charity world." So, so a lot of those conversations were not all that hopeful, but nonetheless, um, I still I'm stubborn, and so uh, so I still really wanted to make that transition. And then uh, one evening, a friend of mine uh, asked me to go to a dinner with her uh, at a different friend's house. And that friend was actually hosting somebody who worked for an anti-slavery organization. And I, at that stage, 
she'd always bang my friend had always banged on about this organization and always said that I should go work for them and I was I always thought no, no you don't really understand I'm not a barrister I don't do death row cases so I I, I thought it was that kind of situation mm-hmm. so so I went along to this dinner and it was an American guy and he had jet lag so by the end of the first course he had literally fallen asleep and his 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 face was in it was in his rice okay but <laughs> before that happened he had told one story and it was a story about a a girl who when he'd been working in Thailand, he'd worked a year trying to rescue uh, minor girls out of brothels who'd been trafficked into brothels and were held there against their will. And he told one story about a a girl who no one really knows how old she was, but she was from Myanmar. She'd been trafficked into uh, Bangkok, where she was being held in a, uh, effectively in a cell hidden in a house. Um, uh, and uh, and she was she was raped many times a day as a uh, as as a forced prostitute in this house. So he told this story about her and about uh, international justice mission, the organisation he worked for, finding her and rescuing her, and then taking her to a safe place, rehabilitating her, and then uh, prosecuting the people who had done that to her. And at that stage, I just thought, wow, you know, this is something which I, you know, I was just tremendously moved and um, went out immediately after that and bought books by the author of the, by the founder of the organization, started reading those. Wow. So then what did you do? Did you apply for a role there? Yeah. So, uh, so that began a process of, of, of with my wife and, and two daughters who were eight and 10, that stage of thinking about, well, where do we want to go? Where do we go abroad? And at that stage, I thought, well, Let's put two and two together and make four. And I thought, well, or even a dois a dois and make cuatro. I thought, let's go back to Brazil. So, um, so because I thought this organization doesn't work in Brazil. I know that there's forced prostitution in Brazil. Uh, I speak Portuguese. Uh, this, you know, I could help this organization found an office in Brazil. So I began that conversation with the organization, uh, with IJM. They said, no, we're not working in Brazil. We haven't got the funding to do that. But uh, would you be interested in a role in India? So I said no, because uh, I thought no, I'll go. I'll go work with somebody else in Brazil. And uh, but then what I realised is this organisation was really good at, at uh, and very successful in freeing victims of uh, violent oppression, which is really what it does. And so in the end, I thought I'd, I'd, I'll probably choose the organisation over the country. And so then I went back and said, okay, yes, we'd go to India. And uh, I had interviews. It was, it was an organization based in Washington, D.C. So I went out there for interviews, got out there. I thought, what on earth am I doing? Are we really going to move to India? But then had a had a series of interviews. And it was a really genuinely inspirational organization. The founder, a guy called Gary Haugen, is just an absolute legend. And so uh, after speaking to him, I just thought, yeah, I absolutely want to work with this organization. So we ended up moving out to Chennai, which is southeast India, and um, yeah, and that was that was quite a, quite an adventure. Before we get into all mm. about what you do, um, was it difficult making that transition and and you know taking that pay cut and changing your lifestyle in that way? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think that it was prob- for us. It was probably easier, even though the transition is obviously greater. So moving from a middle class. But as I had become as a lawyer in London, um, in a leafy kind of area of London, Hernhill. So as a lawyer there, um, moving then to work for a not-for-profit in London would have been salary-wise harder. Mm. Um, moving So even at the transition, moving from London to Chennai is obviously a much greater transition because it touches every single part of your life. In some ways, it was easier because every single part of our context was changing. Okay, so uh, so the salary part was just one part. Everything mm-hmm. had changed. So actually, the the sort of the downshifting financially, moving from uh, from London to Chennai and taking a job in an NGO, was much much easier actually than it would have been probably staying in London. But other aspects of the transition were hard. So my girls were eight and ten at that stage. So they were old enough to have plenty of friends. We, they, when we told them we were going, they cried themselves, literally cried themselves to sleep for about two months every night. So as a parent, that's pretty agonizing to, yeah. to deal with that. But it's really interesting too, because we explained why we were going and they were not crying saying, uh, we're not going, don't take us there. They actually, because we, we kind of presented it, we'd already made the decision obviously, but we kind of presented it as a, should we go and uh, help people who need our help? 
And it's very interesting. The morality of kids is interesting. So even though they immediately saw the cost, which was leaving school, leaving their friends, they were very black and white. They just said, well, if those people need our help, then we, we ha- of course we have to go. So they were crying actually because they knew that we had to go. They didn't want to go, but they were supportive of the move. So it's very interesting sort of that for us, it was gray, you know, but for them, it was absolutely black and white. So, so they were, so the whole family was behind the move, which helped because actually Chennai is, um, is, a, is a difficult place to move to. It's, uh, it's, it's stinking hot. They say in Chennai that there are three seasons. They say that it's, uh, hot, hotter and hottest. And, uh, and, <laughs> and so it proved. So, so it's hard to move to in, in, uh, temperature wise. It's also massively humid. It is also, uh, Indians when they describe something as being, uh, a little bit, uh, kind of broken or dirty or smelly in other parts of India, they may sometimes say it's a bit madrasi. And madras is the old name for Chennai. So, by Indian standards, it actually is a very kind of dirty, uh, littered, um, uh, just a hot and quite at times quite smelly area of India. So therefore, initially trying to adjust to it was very difficult. But as you move anywhere, what we eventually completely flew in love with was uh, was the people. So the people there were just unbelievably friendly, uh, receptive, warm, and so. It took us about four months, and then we, we really, we hated it for about four months, and then we ended up loving it for the rest of the three years that we were there. With your job, was it like a sideways step in terms of seniority in this organisation, or tell me about that? Yeah, so what I haven't explained is that I stopped being a lawyer. So, so in fact, it was a complete change, really. So I moved from being a general counsel at Endemol to then being a uh, – I was running this office. So it was an office – at that stage of about 45 people, all involved in freeing people from debt-based slavery. So we were working to get uh, the people, the Dalits, who used to be called the untouchables, so the lowest caste people. In fact, some of them don't even make it into the caste system, they sit underneath the caste system. So the lowest caste who, uh, who take a very small debt and then are forced, to, not only them, but their whole family is then forced to work uh, the idea being that you you work until you pay off the debt that you owe the person who lent the money to you. Now, the the debts were often no exaggeration were between ten to fifty uh, pounds equivalent, and but people would be working five, ten, twenty years. In fact, we went rescued one man whose grandfather had taken a debt of fifteen pounds um, and had had uh, so that the, he'd worked all his life. His father had worked all his life, and then. Uh, it was the third generation that we rescued. So three generations of people have been working to pay off this debt and their families. So uh, and when I say working, mm-hmm. they were literally not allowed out of the brick kiln that they were working in. So mm-hmm. so horrific, horrific medieval kind of slavery. Um, my, my role was in running this office of people who were doing, honestly, heroic work because it's dangerous work. Because to, to try and find people like that, you have to get people who are prepared to actually try and infiltrate to get into a brick kiln, which is a big walled, you know, um, uh, situation. So you know, we had investigators who would go undercover dressing. They looked like, you know, the uh, uh, the untouchable people. So people from the same tribal group in, in India would go in and then would make contact and then would have to kind of build the evidence that these people were stuck and in slavery. And then we'd have to go to government. So we had people who also were good at that to liaise with government uh, and then advocate to take action to go and rescue people. And then we had to have lawyers there who were criminal lawyers who would prosecute the slave owners. So my job was running this office of, uh, uh, of, of lobbyists, of, uh, of investigators, of lawyers. And then also when you rescue people like that, you have to, um, you've got to rehabilitate them because they've lost any ability to make any decisions. If you're told when to eat, when to sleep, when to get up and everything, you, you lose the ability to, uh, to do any of that for yourself. And so, so we really had to kind of uh, restore people and then help them to begin to dream again, to work out, right, what do I want to do in my life? Um, and then to try and connect their kids who had never been allowed to go to school with education. So we had social workers as well in the office. So my, my job was to run that team. Mm. And we got funding from Google at that stage, which was awesome. And uh, so we then expanded the work that we had been conducting in the south of India into 13 other states in India, which meant that we started to look for partners in different uh, different places in India. So we looked for local organizations. Often they were local freedom fighters who were from that uh, uh, the Dalit community who were really fighting for freedom for their people who were, uh, who were in slavery. Mm-hmm. So it was, an, uh, honestly, it was an extraordinary time. But I, I wasn't a lawyer. My, my mm-hmm. role at that stage was running this office. So, but... 
but obviously as a lawyer you you learn lots of uh, you know lots of skills mm-hmm. and those are useful so uh, what I'd learned at Endemore was uh, and at ITV to some extent too was management skills you know sort of running teams of people at ITV and at Endemore uh, I'd learned um, analysis I'd learned to argue and uh, to be stubborn when required you learn also sort of when to compromise and in, uh, you know in negotiation so all of those things are eminently transferable to uh, to other contexts and was that did you have to convince this organization of of all of these skills that you had in order to get that role because i know a lot of people just think that they can't make that switch because their skill set is quite specific or is in a particular area and so that would prevent them from moving into something else yeah, it's a really good question. So uh, I didn't have to work too hard because actually this organisation, a lot of what it does in the end relies on lawyers. Mm. Uh, so actually there are quite a lot of lawyers who work in international justice mission. So so they already got the value of lawyers and actually quite a few people who were running offices were former lawyers. So I didn't have to work too hard. But uh, but the point you make is is very valid, which is that the skills are transferable. And so Anybody who is thinking of making change, uh, that you know, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to work out well, uh, why you know, what is it that I have? What have I learned? I mean, how how much of a, of my day job as a lawyer really was involved in actually my legal knowledge? You know, my knowledge of the law, uh, very little really. It was a whole skill set of things that I developed around how to apply that, how to work with groups of people, how to argue, how to write, you know, how to read something quickly, how to remember something, how to present. You know, those are all the things which are much much greater part of the the day job actually than remembering the statutes that you that you learned. Yeah. So, so so actually the skill set is 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 eminently transferable. And I ha- what I haven't talked about actually is also that sense of risk. So. So I was really, really worried at leaving my job in Endemore, thinking, well, uh, I'm going to move to India. I'm going to go and work there. I'm taking my, my wife and kids there. And our family situation will be there. Well, what if we hate it? And when we want to move back to London eventually, how will we ever afford it? And will I ever work again anywhere? You know, so, yeah. uh, so you have yeah. all of those fears. Um, which, And in hindsight, what I can say is that what really seemed like a risk at the time was, in fact, the lower risk. So, as a lawyer, I like you know, I like looking at risk. And so, uh, you you look at it. And so, those the, the risks seem to be: well, will I work again? You know, will I enjoy this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, the bigger risk probably would have been actually spending, you know, spending the next twenty or thirty years in a job that I didn't really want to do um, uh, that much longer, getting bored, sulky, kind of miserable. Um, uh, maybe as a result of that, kind of getting divorced or becoming a bad father, or or just generally not enjoying life. So, mm. so in the end, which which was the bigger risk? I guess staying on in this role, which probably in the end would have uh, in Endemol, uh, which and it wasn't because it was Endemol, you know, staying on in a role which I didn't just didn't love. So, was it a bigger risk really to stay on and do that, or was it a bigger risk actually to make change um, and then see where it took me? And actually, I think the latter is much lower risk. Yeah. I think a lot of people, particularly if they're around about that 40 mark, it's so scary because you think I've got so much to lose. But if you think about it, like, you know, most of us are going to be working for another 20 years at yeah, least, right? It's a long time. See, that's a yeah. whole career there. Yeah. So you've yeah. got to, you know, really think, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, do you, I want to do something I love or do I want to just, yeah. you, know, just yeah. you know, live out my days doing something that bores me? Absolutely. And it's funny, isn't it? Because when you when you hit 40 of that phase, you're sort of thinking, well, if I make change, you know, what will my next 20 years look like? Mm. Well, when we were 20, did we ever plan out what the next, you know, what the next 20 years would look like until we were 40? No, mm. you, you sort of think, right, what are my next one, two, three years look like? Not even that, actually. You yeah. think, what, the next, what does tonight look like? Uh, but so, uh, so, but you, you need, so you, you do, you sort of need to think, well, really? I mean, are we, at 40, are we really planning out the next 20 years um, uh, by staying put? No, you know, it's just inertia. It's not, mm. it's not, it's not planning. Planning is, uh, is moving, changing and doing what you, what you love doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the International Justice Mission, where did you go to next? Yeah, so at that stage, uh, my, my daughters were eight and ten when we went. When we went, they went to an American school, which was a lovely school. It was the only bit of grass in the whole of Chennai, uh, in the playground there. Um, and but it was an American school, and so after three years of going to it, when they were thirteen and eleven, we really needed to start thinking. Right, well, where you, you know what next? And this is where. The planning does come in a bit, and and oddly enough, it's probably exactly the same decision which 
the generation before my parents were having to make about about me as a kid and my brothers and sisters. So in terms of do we need to get them back into UK schooling so that they can do uh, GCSEs and A-levels, etc. And at that stage, our feeling was, yes, actually, we do need to get them back into UK schooling. So after our three years in Chennai, we took what was a really difficult decision to move back to the UK uh, uh, to then, yeah, to, to get them back into into UK schooling. There wasn't a, there wasn't a British school in Chennai that they could could attend. So so that was a really tough decision. We really agonised over it. And um, uh, here's a little story which you can uh, either sort of take or discount. So um, uh, so as a as a as a Christian, which I am by by background, but then also sort of my own uh, my own choice. Uh, one of the things that I did about making in terms of making this decision was to pray about it. And uh, and and so coming back to the UK one summer, I was walking to a really really good friend's house in uh, Hammersmith. And the and I'd been I was going actually to chat to him about whether or not as a family we should leave Chennai because it was a really tough decision because I absolutely loved it all in Chennai, felt that it was amazing and just felt that we were part of something profoundly good. You know, so um, uh, so to come back was therefore to give all of that up. So I was I was going to chat it through with him as I arrived at his house. And I remember I live in Herne Hill, which is SE24. So this was in Hammersmith. As I arrived at his house, just in his gate post was a little half piece of paper fluttering, okay, caught in his gatepost. It was half a page of the A to Z, okay, and it was a that's half... A map that's, sorry, the A to yeah. Z is a, is, a, is a map of London. It has about 140 pages in it, okay. This was half a page. That half page had my home address on it. So I was in Hammersmith, and that half page had my road in SE24, which is, you know, 10 miles away, I guess, or something. So... You know, if you're a person of faith, you think, wow, that's quite an indication. Yeah. Um, uh, equally speaking, you know, coincidences happen, right? So, um, uh, but that's quite a strange one. Mm. So, uh, having said that, at that point in time, I, you know, I actually just put it aside and thought, ah, oh, it's coincidence. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, and then, but so we, but we made a decision to come home. And in part, it was because it was, it was for education for the girls. And when I came home then, and then kind of again used my legal knowledge because I then took on a role as, global director of governance for a vision fund which is a microfinance organization which which made tiny loans mainly to women actually uh to to try and create wealth for women who have considerable entrepreneurial skill but have no access to capital so typical example here would be a, a, an african woman in a rural village who actually is a good seamstress but can't afford a sewing machine so you she borrows a tiny amount of money buys a sewing machine then can really increase her productivity, uh, pays the loan back very quickly, uh, takes another bigger loan, buys three more, starts to employ other people in the village. And uh, so you're creating wealth. Why women? Well, because women tend to spend much more of the money that they make actually on the family, whereas men tend to piss out of the wall. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, those are generalizations, but actually there's some truth in them too. Yeah. So so you create women, uh, sort of wealth in the hands of women in poor rural communities, and then they tend to spend it um, on children's education and on fixing the roof, uh, etc. So got involved in microfinance uh, as a global director of governance, which obviously came from my legal skill set. Um, did that for about 18 months loved the organization loved microfinance didn't love doing governance full-time actually mm. i found it a bit dry in all honesty i see the value in governance but i, I didn't want to do that as my full-time job and then i moved on to loris sport for good so i became chief executive at loris sport for good which is what i'm now doing that is an organization that uses sport as a tool for social transformation it was born actually out of a speech which was given by Nelson Mandela, uh, which is a great place for any organization to be born. So our birthright at Loris War for Good is this amazing speech that Mandela gave at the Loris World Sports Awards um, back in the year 2000. And it was basically a speech about sport having the power to transform the world, uh, turning uh, despair into hope, speaking to youth in a language that they can understand, being more powerful than governments in breaking down racial barriers. And all of those things are true of sport. And so what we do is we use sport in a very intentional way to help children and young people overcome violence, discrimination and disadvantage. So in which always, countries is that? Uh, we work in 41 different countries. Uh, so across Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, North America, um, and uh, always through sport, never about sport. So we're around social change. So that might be 
mental well-being, uh, improving access to education. If you're a if you're a young person in, in the slums of Mumbai, the likelihood of going to school could be quite low. But actually, if you get involved in a sports program and then that coach becomes your mentor, effectively, um, and that mentor is telling you, why are you going to school? And then you say, well, I can't because my parents want me to go and pick up fish in the market so that I can earn 50 cents a day. Um, uh, then you need someone who's going to go and help the parents also to understand the value of education. So. So it's, that's, that's the sort of way it works, that it always creates a relationship between a young person affecting their sports coach who actually becomes a life mentor. Um, and so whether it's education, whether it's employability, so getting, uh, getting, you know, kids off the streets in Southeast London near where I live actually and into sports clubs and then back into adult education or young, young adult education and then back into employment, whether it is women and girls empowerment. So we support programs in Khalifi, Kenya, for example, where child marriage is the norm. Uh, but actually in this program, which gets a ton of young girls together to play football, about 9,000 of them around rural villages, it works to empower them to build sisterhood and effectively to help them to advocate to their parents as to why they don't want to get married and why they want to stay in education. And so, um, so it's using sport always, but always intentionally to help vulnerable people. Uh, the Middle East. I was actually in the West Bank uh, of uh, uh, Palestine when uh, the day that, that Donald Trump declared that he was going to be moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So I was actually on the West Bank that day and uh, with a program called uh, Peace Players. It uses basketball to create harmony and peace between um, uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And it's an incredible program. It starts when they were about six years old, again, mainly working with girls, and then gradually, little by little, kind of forms them. They, they start as individuals, Palestinians playing and, um, and Israelis playing separately. And then gradually, little by little, they integrate them. Uh, they then start playing together. And it's an incredibly powerful thing. Basketball is the sport they choose because basketball actually is quite limited space. And so you have to be in the limited space with somebody who, until then, your family has always called the other. And uh, literally, that's what they call them, you know, the other. And so, uh, and they don't, there's no real mingling um, uh, among these two people groupings until they play basketball. When they start playing, they become teammates. When you become teammates and you play at a serious level, then actually go on tour. So what then happens is you get Palestinian girls staying with Israeli families, Israeli girls staying with their Palestinian families. So not only do the girls meet, families meet. I went, I heard, I was talking to one uh, incredible Israeli 18-year-old girl who just had her, her birthday about three weeks before I was talking to her. And she had invited uh, her Palestinian friend to her birthday party and some of her Palestinian friends' friends. So they all came to this 18-year-old Israeli girl's birthday party. And of course, all the Israeli girls' friends were there too. Now, when you're 18, as an Israeli, you're going into the military. So a ton of these 18-year-old Israelis were literally off to the military and they would be holding guns in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, uh, patrolling Palestinians. If they hadn't gone to this 18th birthday party, first, they probably would never have met a Palestinian, literally, before they were holding guns and actually patrolling them. So you sort of see the incredible convening power of sport um, when you use it intentionally. So anyway, I'm, I'm very passionate about that and uh, love what Laura Sport for Good does. Oh, that's amazing. You're, can we talk about? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm, I'm about to move again. So I am passionate about Loris. I've been there as chief executive for four years and I, uh, and I really love what it does. Um, I am going back there to work for International Justice Mission, uh, which I'm going to be beginning in about three weeks time. And uh, as the regional president for Africa and for Europe, why moving on? Why moving back? Well, because I, I you know, you'll have gathered from the way that I talk about the uh, the nonprofit world that I'm passionate about. I'm you know I'm not going to become a lawyer again now, uh, so I'm going to be staying in the nonprofit world. And I'm really passionate about about helping victims of violence. Actually, whether that is um, women who are subject to intimate partner violence, whether it is uh, girls going into child marriage, um, uh, uh, younger girls who are undergoing FGM, uh, whether it is uh, uh, sort of people who are incarcerated without trial in in in, in cells uh in, you know whether it is girls trafficked into brothels so all of these have linkage which are they're people who are very vulnerable um who the rule of law is not really protecting in the situation that they're in and therefore they are abused 
by somebody who is more powerful and stronger than them. So that's really the linkage between all of these victims of violence in these contexts that I'm talking about. And so I'm really passionate about trying to bring power to the side of people who are powerless and uh, bringing rescue and rehabilitation and then bringing also accountability to people who believe that they can operate with impunity and abuse other people. So, and that's, that's, that's why I want to get back into international justice mission because really that's what it does. Yeah. I mean, that's hugely challenging. What are the main yeah. challenges in achieving the aims of the international justice mission? And the main, the main challenges are, are, are okay, there's, there's obviously a risk factor because you're challenging vested interests. So, so, you know, it turns out that, Bullies in the end are cowards, but uh, but quite often they they group together with other bullies and um, uh, and form quite a, quite a strong cabal and 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 often with some surprisingly kind of high authority which is deciding to turn a blind eye to it. So so one of the main challenges is that uh, you're challenging vested interests that uh, that often actually can be quite linked to uh, uh, to power. So one of the challenges is to find out those people who. Uh, who are in power, who really want to support uh, what is right and good and actually wants to protect their vulnerable citizens. So one challenge is finding the people that you can work with and, uh, and who are brave enough and strong enough to, uh, mm. to want to kind of build accountability in their, uh, uh, in their government or legal systems or police systems or judiciary, whatever it is. So, so finding the right people is one big challenge. Um, explain, uh, believing that change can come is another, another challenge because sometimes what looks like sort of corruption or just lack of uh, of any kind of will to help vulnerable people is so ingrained that just the hope for change can be a cha- can be a challenge because this takes a long time. So sticking at it and really kind of uh, being hopeful for change is uh, is another challenge. So keeping motivation going in a team of people who are working hard towards an end which may be a long way off is another uh, is another challenge. Working in broken judicial systems where you know, where actually you might turn up to court and, uh, and in fact, just, you know, it's, it's adjourned for this kind of, you know, yet again, or yet again, yet again, yet again, um, either because there are just too many cases on, um, or because actually there's been a bribe or a payment somewhere that you don't know about, or just because actually, you know, it was a monsoon period. And so the witnesses couldn't get there or whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. so it's those kinds of challenges. Money is always a challenge too. You know, you've got to raise funding to do that kind of work. So, um, so one of my big focuses will be trying to really increase the level of funding, which is available for this kind of work around Africa and Europe. So those are the kinds of challenges, but, um, but, uh, but the work is incredible. And so in the end, that, that it makes any of these challenges eminently worthwhile. Yeah. And how do you look after your mental health when you're faced with these heartbreaking things that are happening around the world? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. So, and there are, so what start, staff care is, and sort of the, there's, the, there's the how do you look after your own, and there's also how do you look after your team's health. And so staff care is really, really key. Um, one of the things that I absolutely loved about the Chennai office was uh, when I was there with that international justice mission was just the amount of humor that there was around. So there were every, every inter, we had lots of interns who had come out mainly from the US to come and work for 10 months uh, at a time uh, with IJM in Chennai. And every single one of them had some kind of prank pulled on them. And uh, so, so the humor is a very important part of it. It's not enough in itself. So talking to people, as in uh, talking to a counsellor, uh, having somebody who you can offload to on a on a regular basis is actually really really key. Uh, so for, and so actually one of the things that we did in the Chennai office was to have somebody who's on the payroll whose job it was to come in once a week and uh, and then staff were encouraged to go and you know sit on a beanbag with a counsellor, which is uh, and 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 just simply say this is what I found hard this week or, mm. or this month or however regular it was going to be. So. That's really, really key. As a person of faith, which I am, um, uh, for me also, uh, kind of stillness and contemplation is a, is a really important part of my, my routine. So uh, a few times a week, I will kind of, uh, I will be still and I will, uh, I'll contemplate, you know, I'll reflect mm. and I'll pray. Um, and so, uh, and that for me is also an important part of my own uh, mental well-being. So, so th- those kinds of things are really important. And I think just being, being, being joyful actually as well is a, and you know it whenever you know it's the same about ITV or any job actually when when you're working with a team of people 
which actually has you know has a lot of laughter and joy you can put up with a lot of rubbish can't you if mm. you if you're working in that kind of context and so so that's a that's a big part of it as well mm. and karaoke and hope. i mentioned hope earlier but hope is key as well believing that change will come yes yeah 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 so there's a lot of skepticism nowadays around yeah. charities following some yeah. Yeah. bad press around yeah. certain people in other charities yeah. Um, yeah. who took advantage of their position yep. Uh, do you come across that in what you do? And if you do, how do you address it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So one of the things which at, uh, at Laureus when I arrived there um, was that there wasn't at that stage an iterated set of values. Yeah. Now, every organisation has its values. And so uh, it's just a question of whether they're spoken and whether they're lived or not, really. And so, but these weren't weren't spoken. And so... One of the things that we did there is we, as a, you know, as a as a team and as a wider international team, because Loris is based in London, but there are also eight national offices in different countries, and then working in many other countries. So we held uh, two sessions with all staff and really started to work out what are our values, okay? And um, and and actually, our two of our values we we came up with five, which spell tribe, so the teamwork, responsible stewardship. Um, Initiative leadership, beneficiary focus, and excellence. So there are two of those that I want to highlight, which I think are critical in uh, in any nonprofit, which are responsible stewardship, and that essentially is about taking care of the trust that people place in you. So now, whether that is funders who who in the end are giving you money and are expecting you to spend it well, uh, whether actually in the end it is employees who are working with you and expect you to develop them properly and to give them uh, personal opportunities or whether it is in the end of course end beneficiaries or participants uh, that 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 idea of stewardship and looking after the end beneficiaries is absolutely key so so it needs to be baked into the values of the organization in a very stated way that's not enough, of course. You then have got to have your right safeguarding uh, principles. You've got to set up your governance properly. So really, really, really key to do all of that stuff. Have I come across situations where, uh, you know, where they're not here to? Yes, sadly. I mean, at Laureus, we fund 186 different organizations. So, and some of them are large and some of them are very small. So you're going to get varying standards, you know, when you are funding across that many organizations. The, the key to me, is not to expect perfection from every organization. In fact, there is no organization that's perfect. Everyone mm. can get better. The key in the end is, well, our bottom line, Laureus, and I would suggest this is a pretty good rule of thumb elsewhere too, is uh, always make sure the programs are safe. So you, you can't fund or run anything which in the end isn't safe for uh, the people who are um, who are uh, who are participants in that program. So otherwise, you're just simply creating yet another place where people might be abused. You know, so you've got to create something that's safe. That's baseline, and if it's not safe, you've just got to abandon it. Um, but but above and beyond that, then I think you can work with anyone who's willing to get better. So baseline's got to be safe. It hasn't got to be perfect. That's what due diligence is for. You know, you uh, you work out actually what, where a program can improve, where an organisation can improve. And you help that organization along the road to improvement, make it better at what it does, whether that's governance, whether it is financial controls, whether it's methodology that they're using for transformation, whatever it is, you know, you make an organization better. And so, so yeah, there are varying standards in the charitable sector. Um, I've been lucky to work with organizations that I think are good ones. Uh, I would never spend much time in an organization that I don't think is uh, is really kind of doing what it says on the tin um, because life is, is short, isn't it? You might as well mm. spend your time doing something that you think is, is great. Yeah, definitely. So how have you changed as a person? Because uh, obviously it's a big change going from corporate to what you're doing mm. and you've from what you've touched on with, you know, the slavery, you know, there's some really grim stuff happening <laughs> How have you changed as a person in the face of all of this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm terrible at self-reflection, in all honesty, right? So uh, <laughs> I really am. Uh, so how have I changed as a person? I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Um, I guess... Should I ask your wife? You, you probably should. You probably should. So in some, in some ways, it's made me more serious as a person, in some ways, because, because I've seen more serious stuff. I, I didn't mention there's one... One thing in, Chen, in Chen, when I was working in Chennai, one case which was particularly gruesome, we worked on. We rescued two guys who had actually they had been trafficked, they'd been tricked into 
slavery. There were 10 people on a train. Eight of them realized they were being tricked into slavery and got off the train. Two of them who who, who were just a bit more straightforward and, and maybe a bit more simple than the other eight didn't get off the train. They arrived. Therefore, the slave owner who thought he was buying 10 people got two and was utterly furious. So he he began working them. He worked them till uh, from, I think it was something like around 5 a.m. till midnight every day, really, really hard. Then he brought every night, he brought him and his friends in with chains and bats and beat them till they're unconscious. They then got up and he worked them the next day. That happened for six days. On the seventh day, he took them into the woods and he said to them, right, what do you want to lose? Your life, your leg or your hand? And so they said, our hands. And he literally, he and his people held them down and they literally hacked off their left hands with um, uh, with, with axes and left them to die. Miraculously, they managed to, sorry, he didn't leave them to die. They then went off and had a celebratory drink, okay. leaving them in the forest. These guys managed to find their way eventually to a bus stop. They walked about two or three kilometers. It's incredible how they survived. Eventually found their way to a hospital and uh, and we ended up uh, finding them at that stage. So it wasn't a typical rescue, but mm. finding them uh, uh, and then rehabilitating them and prosecuting the slave owners. But when you're dealing with stuff like that, it it it, it changes you a little bit, you know. So uh, so yeah. so so there is so I, so I'm more serious about some parts of life now than I than potentially that I was before. Yeah. Um, I hope I haven't lost also sort of levity and ability to to, to have a laugh, but but I'm more serious about some things than I used to be. And, and therefore, I have higher expectation about uh, about how things should be because I've seen things that can be really, really, really messed up. Mm. And so, uh, so therefore, I want things to be a lot better. So I'm a lot more socially ambitious for change, I think, than uh, uh, than I used to be. Um, and I guess also through all of this, I've I've become more hopeful for change because I've seen change. And so uh, I no longer believe I've seen seen things that just seem utterly impossible shift and change and so therefore i don't really believe that that there's anything that can't change so mm. I, I think i think that has uh, has also probably changed to me as well yeah is it is it harder to trust people now um no i'm just more careful about who i trust mm. yeah but i mean when you're effectively almost in the trenches with people i don't want to kind of over dramatize it but but in a sense at times it feels like that when you're in a brick kiln and there's a mob forming and you're worried about your safety and the safety of your team, you're thinking, well, when do we call this and think it's too dangerous to stay when we leave? Um, uh, you, you build very strong trust. So, mm. so actually, I probably have deeper trust with, uh, with people, but I'm possibly a bit more circumspect about who, who I would trust. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I, I think not many people would kind of react with that kind of positivity. So it's like really inspiring to hear you say this. Uh, well, no, do you know what? But I'm very lucky. The Chennai office would say to me, and I go often back to Chennai because in fact that was the time when I made my change. Um, mm-hmm. So the Chennai office used to say to me, thank you so much for making that great sacrifice and coming out here and helping us. And I would say to them, look, do you really, what do you think it's a sacrifice? Honestly, you know, getting getting the chance to be involved in that, getting the chance to be in a brick kiln, you know, when you're leading. Uh, one time we led, um, uh, I think it's three hundred and something people out of slavery and into freedom. You're literally there um, at that point. I mean, there's nothing that compares to that. So, yeah. actually, it's totally joyful, and uh, and so it make yeah extraordinary. So. I, I think that whenever you give, you get back far more than you give. And, mm. uh, and so, yeah, so for me, I, I just consider I'm, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have kind of stumbled into, uh, uh, into what I do now. What is success for you now that you're basically doing what really fulfills you? What, what's success wow. look yeah. like? That's a really great question. So uh, I don't know, actually. I think success for me... I suppose is now very much bound up in in success of the organisation I'm working for because I really believe in it. Mm. So honestly, I, I'm I'm just really really fortunate. I you know I have I'm I I'm fortunate. I have a family who I love and uh, uh, I have a ton of mates who I love. I live I live in a city London. I adore London. I live in a city that I love. Um, I, I'm just about to move into a job working with an organisation that I really really love. Uh, so. I guess success for me over the next few years is going to be about how um, 
you know, how do I really expand the work which International Justice Mission is doing in Africa? How do we protect more people? Um, how do we get governments to really look after their vulnerable citizens? Uh, uh, so honestly, that that will be success for me. It will be how how do I expand that work? Uh, I, I'd love to think I've changed jobs a few times. I'd love to think now that I'm joined, rejoining IJM. I'm it's like going back to family in a sense that, uh, and I I'd like to think that I could be in this role for you know, five, 10 years. And so success for me would be really growing it and uh, growing the organization. Oh, wonderful. And now it feels very superficial superficial no. of me to ask this question, no. <laughs> but it's for your travel tip. And I'm oh, guessing yeah, yeah, yeah. you've lived in some pretty amazing places yeah, around the world. Yeah. What's your travel tip? <laughs> I, I adore travel, right? So I'm just, I haven't even mentioned that, but I love traveling. I've always traveled whenever I had, had the chance um, and therefore had various muggings along the way as well. Um, <laughs> but... My travel tip, okay, in terms of places where to go, um, not many people go to Chennai because uh, it's not on the tourist trail in India. But if you happen to find yourself in Chennai, which can be really, really, even for India, full-on city, right? Mm -hmm. So in India could be really full-on, but Chennai is full-on even by Indian standards. Um, there is a lovely oasis of peace and calm uh, in the middle of Chennai, and it's called Anoki. Um, a-N-O-K-H-I. It's a beautiful little kind of uh, cafe in an old colonial building. There aren't many of those left in Chennai. It has the only really drinkable coffee in Chennai. <laughs> Always a nice kind of sandwich of some description. Lovely air conditioned. Down, down below it has the most kind of gorgeous prints and, um, uh, uh, and places to buy. So it doesn't sound like a particularly kind of interesting travel trip. But honestly, if you're in Chennai... There aren't many oases in Chennai. It's a city of about 10, 15 million people. and There really wow. aren't many oases. So Anoki uh, is one of them. Sounds like a really small-minded travel trip. But, um, <laughs> but for us, when we were there as a family, it was always our little oasis there. Yeah. So, uh, so it's good. It's okay. lovely. Thank you. Now, finally, um, if people have been inspired by, by you and what the International Justice Mission does, how can they support it? Yeah, really good question. They can go onto the website, International Justice Mission, I think it's IJM.org, I should know, shouldn't I? But, um, so you can go onto the website, you can read more about the work, um, and then uh, from there, get involved in it. So there are various ways of your deaf involvement. You can sort of become an intern. Um, uh, you can just read more about it, advocate for it. Uh, you can also, if you want to get really involved, become a freedom partner, which involves signing up and making a monthly contribution to it. And I can vouch the fact that the money is phenomenally well used. So, so various ways to get involved in it. More broadly than that, um, I, I would just suggest anyone who wants to make change, even though I was, even though I know earlier on I was very negative about going for cups of coffee, it is important actually. So, so I would say if you want to make change, start having the first cup of coffee with somebody who you think might have something interesting to say. Just go for that first cup of coffee. It's going to lead to others. May become it may end up with you kind of interning somewhere doing something different, um, and it's just one step after another. Great. So you may be inundated with people wanting to have coffee with you now, Andy. Yeah, no, I'd love that. It'd be great. I'd really enjoy that. I, I do enjoy that. It's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so inspired by this and uh, kind of wondering what I've done with my life, really. So. <laughs> it's what you're going to do with your life, isn't it? That's what's important. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. thank you, Andy. It's yeah. been an absolute I've, pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you to them so much as well. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It will give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love. 